Imagine, it's early morning just after dawn. A soft glow crowns the Mount of Olives like a halo. It's going to be a spectacular day. You're in Jerusalem's temple courts. You love it here at this time of day. It's so peaceful, with birds singing and dancing across the stones of the Temple Mount, and the crush of people has yet to materialize. Maybe that's why you notice a man over by Solomon's colonnade, seated with a few listeners around him. He's focusing on his hearers as if they were the only people in the world. He's not distracted or overexcited. He's calm, peaceful, completely at ease in his own skin and in the moment. So he doesn't notice a cabal of Pharisees roughly dragging a woman across the courtyard, making a beeline for this teacher and his little band. You decide to move closer. And as you pick up the teacher's words, you notice his Galilean accent. You wonder if this is the teacher from up north everyone is talking about. Jesus of Nazareth. You can also hear the desperate whimpers of that woman whom the Pharisees have just flung down in front of Jesus. She looks roughed up. Or is it, yes, her face is painted in a way that implies she's a woman of ill repute. But now it's all running down her cheeks because she's been crying, sobbing. Her tears are still gushing. She's afraid for her life. The religious leaders plow into the group and force their way in front of the scattering crowd. Teacher, they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says she must be stoned to death. What do you say? They obviously were using this woman, as wretched as she might be, for their own purposes. They cared nothing for her. Who knows about their private lives, you think? I wonder what kind of improper means they used to catch her in such a secret sin, you wonder. But strangely, Jesus meets their lack of care or kindness with his nonchalance himself. He bends down and starts writing with his finger in some dirt that is collected over some of the stones. This seems to enrage them all the more. They scream at him to answer them. And Jesus stands and says, how about this? Any one of you who is without sin may start. You throw the first stone. Then he stoops down again, doodling in the ground. Silence. One of the elderly Pharisees turns and hobbles away, shaking his head. Then another old man. One by one until that's all that's left in front of that little group of early dawn learners. All that's left is Jesus and this woman of the night. Jesus straightens as the woman, still frightened, stops sobbing and begins wiping away her tears. Ma'am, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir. No one, she says, wide-eyed, but hope dawning across her face. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares, for all to hear. Go now and leave your life of sin behind. The woman collapses on the ground again, sobbing, in front of the teacher. But this time, her tears were not for shame. They were tears of utter relief and joy. She has been forgiven in front of all, from that for which she never thought she could.
Hello, everybody. Welcome to the These Days Podcast. This is Ben and Dwayne here Hello. in the... What's it called? A Highlands Castle oh, right. among the conifers. Oh, the Highland Castle in the conifers. There you go. That's uh, beautiful. It's just it's so sweet. The it's, way yeah, it's just a sweet little lilting yeah. sound, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to episode two of season six. Um, mm. We So we are doing something a little different this year, this season. Uh, we're still about... What are we about, Dad? We are about uh, theology for the people, but really, it's about the biblical story for the people this time. Right, that's right. Yeah. Well, you, I was, I thought you were just going to say theology for the people, and I would finish it. So, oh, so, so I totally so we're about, did. It. We're about theology for the people, and then, I, and then I was going to say, but we're switching it up a little bit, and we're following the biblical story instead of uh, random theology points. Okay. Well, why don't I just say it again, and then you can cut that out? Okay. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. All Let's yeah. just continue on. Yes. Amen. Uh, so we're mostly looking in the book of John, and we're gonna we're jumping around a little bit, but we're focusing on stories uh, in the book of John, and we're looking at stories in the book of John about abundance, mm. which might seem a little counterintuitive mm-hmm. in a time of so much scarcity. I don't have enough of. Um, Maybe material possessions. Toilet maybe. paper. There's just not enough toilet paper out there, man. <laughs> paper towels, baby. Oh man. Yeah, yeah. I have had to go to Costco three times. All the paper, all the shortages in the supply chains right now. You yeah. can't like you can't buy a new car because yeah. of the microchip shortage and all that kind of stuff. By the way, um, the these days podcast did not cause that. We we knew we were going to do this before. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and also, it might feel like I don't have enough time, or I don't have enough. Uh, community or connection or whatever else might be going on. But we're talking about abundance in the context of the story of Jesus. And it's actually, you know, abundance is what Jesus offered us, no matter where we're at, what time we live in, or what is currently happening in our lives. And there's a famous statement about this that we all, well, many of us probably know quite well in John 10.10, which says that Jesus says that I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so we're going to explore sort of the book of John and the stories that illustrate that point. What does it mean to have abundance in Jesus? And we'll actually work our way towards John 10.10 eventually. So with that said, Dad, why don't you lead us into that cold open? What was that about? Uh, That is the story from John chapter 8 about the woman that was caught in adultery and then dragged before Jesus. As again, the Pharisees, as we said in the cold open, were trying to use her to get to Jesus uh, whether or not they were uh, genuinely uh, concerned about that or if they'd known sh- this had been going on all along, it's a real question. But uh, need to say something for Bible nerds out there, or anybody, really, because when you read modern translations, that story is in ital- italics or there's a note before it or after it saying that this isn't in one of the original manuscripts. And the, quite frankly, the evidence is that most almost certainly it wasn't in the original manuscript, so it re- wasn't originally part of John. But there's also really good evidence that it was a true story and it actually happened. And it does fit with several other things, as we're going to see, uh, that Jesus did and said. And even uh, almost, um, you know, point for point on another thing that happened to him that was uh, uh, registered in several of the Gospels. And the the thing about it is, I just want to say this, uh, you know, when you see stuff like that, don't be kind of blown off by it, you know, is the Bible, you know, questionable or something. No, actually, this is... This is uh, what, as Peter says in his first letter, this is actually one of those things where we have the Bible made more sure to us because we know, you know, we, we've got so much evidence and so much manuscript uh, information, for example, in old manuscripts, more than any other ancient writing, like by far, by thousands. Um, and so 
the good news is is that even though that may not have meant to be in that part, um, it, it's uh, the very fact that we know that uh, indicates that you can trust the Bible that's in your lap. But also, there's indications or, that or it, on your phone, as the case may be, or on your phone. Yes, yes. Well, that's going to be important for later when we talk about the surprise. What's the, oh, that's right, that's right, that's yeah. right. Your your big yeah. announcement. Well, no, yeah. Well, actually, you're making it because I don't really understand. <laughs> it. But anyway, okay. So, but here, here's the thing: we we know that it probably almost certainly happened, and, and it's the perfect cold open because it's it's written generally in a, in a moving story style, but. Um, it it uh, is so much like Jesus, and uh, it's a window on how he dealt with the rapid succession of tricks from the religious leaders and the elites and all the things that he was facing uh, in the midst of all this, and yet he had this abundance of forgiveness for the people that came to him, even the worst, even the people that you know didn't think they could ever be forgiven. And uh, if anybody's uh, listening to this within the sound of this podcast— there may be things that just, you know, every time Satan wants to get you, he just pulls up that thing that you remember that happened to you. Uh, and uh, because it's just hard for you to believe that Jesus could forgive you for that. And so today we want to talk about the abundance of forgiveness. Um, and uh, there may be somebody here who doesn't even know why that should matter, or that maybe you're kind of new to all this. And hopefully by the end of the podcast, you'll kind of see how Jesus uh, talked about forgiveness and why it is a huge thing for us and why it really does, uh, Jesus' forgiveness sets us free. And the big idea today is that Jesus claimed authority to forgive even the worst of sinners. Um, in his day then, the religious people and all the people standing around there knew, because uh, they were pretty well educated in Old Testament Bible, um, even the person on the street, uh, to some degree, they'd heard it read. They all knew that the only person who could genuinely forgive sins was God, and that's what really fried the Pharisees and the religious elites. And right, I think that's, that's the exact word uh, the Apostle John uses, what? fried their brains. <laughs> ben, I'm trying to bring it up to date here. Okay, sorry, so, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. <laughs> yeah, but you know, well, we're not going to go that way. Anyway, but one of the things that for us moderns where we don't use sin very often, and I bet you a lot of people don't even know what the word means in our current uh, world today, um, I mean, we all have an inkling and stuff, you know, but is it is it just, you know, religious people or Christians just, you know, using it as a club on people or so forth? And the reality is, is no. Uh, it's just not a word we use very often because the, the problem is, is most people would say, well, forgiven what? And what this woman was, was guilty of, even though it was a rather dramatic sin, right, and a, a bad sin, um, the reality is, is any sin. Is, is an affront to God because we any sin is falling short of his standards. And that's that's not that hard to uh, really figure out because, you know what, we fall short of our own standards. You know, things that we say we'll never do. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat at night. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to do this thing. And we get the standards all together. Beginning of the, the year, we, we build these new standards. They're called uh, resolutions, New Year's resolutions. And within a month, we're breaking our standards. So why should it be a surprise that we're, you know, we know that something's off. We certainly know that, have this sense that if there is a God, man, we probably aren't following his standards. But I know about, even in my own life, even today, Ben, fell short. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, um, I did something that I haven't probably done in 10, maybe 20 years, because I hate it so much. Uh-oh. I let somebody down because I said I would meet them for breakfast. Uh-oh. And I didn't show up. I slept through my clock. I saw it on 
Sunday. I saw it in my, my calendar. I saw it on Tuesday. I saw it on Wednesday. And today is Thursday. And I slept right past it with all the stuff I got going on. So, you know, there's some, there's some falling short there that I just can't stand when I do that. And I'll probably go another 10 years because it's so offensive to me. But this is, this is one of the main things that got Jesus into trouble with religious folks. He seems to relish giving even the worst sinners a new start. And this is what Paul calls the scandal of the New Testament. The word scandalon, which is what we get scandalous from, is actually appears 15 times in the New Testament. And one of those times is in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 21, it says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now listen to this. A stumbling block, that's the word scandalon. A scandalon, a scandal to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And uh, that's, so, it's a, so this forgiveness that Christ offers is a, uh, is a scandal. It's a, um, you know, it was scandalous then, it's scandalous today. Uh, I have a friend of mine who a long time ago, before he was a Christian, I'd shared Christ with him and we talked about what the gospel was and all that kind of stuff. But he uh, one day came to me and just kind of turned before he walked out the door. He said, you know, this is what's hanging me up. He said, I can't, I can't earn a relationship with Christ. I can't deserve it. Uh, it just doesn't seem right. It just seems wrong. And all, and all my life I've worked hard to be a good person and to pay my way. But it's kind of crazy to think that you could earn your way with God, right? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, you got a point. So something about it still scandalizes us today. And uh, so you can kind of see why uh, that was uh, true even in Jesus' time. That's great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to talk... Uh, when we're talking about Jesus forgiving sins, it's important to talk about what that actually means, what he means when he forgives sins. Because uh, sort of our um, Western modern understanding of forgiveness is, is sort of this very shallow level of basically saying it's not a big deal. Like when someone says, I'm sorry, what do we say? We say, oh, it's okay. Yeah. In reality, it's not okay. But we're saying that it's not a big, we're going we're gonna to treat it as if it's not a big deal. Jesus is not treating our sins as if it's not a big deal. Uh, sin and forgiveness is a theme all the way through the scriptures, and if you look at how God deals with sin, um, it it shows that he takes it seriously and makes the forgiveness of Jesus all the more radical in what he's actually doing. So um, the the idea of, of sin is, all the, the reality of sin, I should say, is something that exists all through the Bible, and the Jewish law in the Old Testament provides this provision, many provisions, for how to have your sins forgiven by God. And then, so this is all like Old Covenant stuff, right? Like all these laws and rituals uh, by which we can be forgiven and be made right before God. And then Jesus comes and, and claims, if we've read the Bible, none of this is news to us, right? Jesus claims to be fulfilling the Old Covenant and, and uh, not abolishing it by any means. He says that in Matthew 5, right? I did not come to abolish the least part of the law, but actually to fulfill the law. So he's saying what the law was meant to lead us towards is actually here now. All along, the law has been pointing to something, and Jesus is claiming to be that something. And so Jesus, far from offering a new set of rules by which we might be able to have our sins atoned for, forgiven, taken care of, um, he actually offers 
a new kind of forgiveness, a complete, radical, and permanent forgiveness. We see that it's complete all through the scriptures, places like Psalm 103, but also Colossians 2, talking about the work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, we see that it's radical in like 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says that God showed his grace by forgiving me, the very worst of all the sinners. Mm. We see it by the story we just read or just heard in John 8 about the adulterous woman, about the woman anointing Jesus' feet in Luke 7, when Jesus says she's been forgiven much, and so she loves much. So it's this radical forgiveness of people who should, um, on one level, people might think should never be forgiven. And then it's a permanent forgiveness. We see this in places like Hebrews 12, where it says Jesus sacrifice was once for all time. And Jesus himself talks about his radical, complete, and permanent forgiveness and how it fulfills the old covenant and creates this new covenant kind of forgiveness. One of the famous places in John where he talks about this is John 3, starting in verse 14. This includes the most famous verse in the world, Dad. Ah. The most famous verse in the world. Uh, John 3.16, right? Oh, yeah. Jesus is talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus who's very familiar with the Old Covenant and very meticulous in how he operates in that Old Covenant in order to have his sins continually forgiven as he operates in these rituals and laws. Not all the Pharisees and were... Uh... That's true. Opposing Jesus, yeah. That's true. And so uh, John 3, starting in 14, uh, Jesus says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, that the son, so the Son of Man might be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that, uh, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, hey, remember what Moses did under the Old Covenant where all the Israelites got sick and God told Moses, make a bronze serpent, hold it up on a stick and say, anyone who looks at this serpent will be saved by the power of God. The act of looking at the serpent is an act of faith in God's healing power. And so all the people uh, look at this serpent and they are healed. They're saved from this, this pestilence that's raging through the, the people. And so uh, Jesus is saying, I'm doing that, but in a new and bigger way. I'm not here to condemn the world. I'm actually going to save the world. Hmm. And the word save has become such a church word, such a um, uh, salvation, right? That's such a churchy thing. To, Jesus is the Savior. And we don't always understand what we mean by that. Bob but if Dylan we, had an album called Saved. That's right. Yeah. But if we if we take that word out of context, right, then if we just take it into our normal vocabulary, we might have a clear understanding of what that means. It just means to rescue somebody, to deliver mm. somebody from whatever, from falling over a cliff, from a disease, they've been saved. We have saved them from drowning or whatever it is. And so in that sense, Jesus comes to save us. So for Jesus, sin is a big problem. And it's, it's sort of for him like a disease, like in the story of Moses, right? The disease that's killing all the Israelite people, so they have to look up at the serpent and receive the healing power of God. He's saying in the same way, we're all sick with a disease called sin, not a physical disease, but a, but a disease that affects, well, it, it does affect our physicality, it affects everything, this disease of sin and evil. And Jesus is here to heal, to be the healing of God for that disease called sin. Uh, it's like when Jesus says many times in uh, Luke and Mark and elsewhere, says that uh, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I've mm -hmm. come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so Jesus views himself as 
he takes sin seriously as a big, big, big problem. Sin is killing people. It's actually killing people. It's destroying their lives. It's tearing apart communities and families. It's a disease on the human race. And he is intent on dealing with that disease. Yeah, I love that word heal. I, I mean, that's really um, the healing that we need is really a, it's not just a metaphor, but it's, it's a perfect description of what it's about. And that really leads to the next thing, and that is that Jesus is the sole provider of abundant forgiveness, but he graciously asks something of us, because if he didn't, um, it wouldn't be loving to us. And, and what we're talking about is that forgiveness is all his work. It's completely his work, but he asks us for repentance. And that's not a word we use very often. And, it, and it's been so misused and thrown around that it's, um, you know, a lot of people just sort of shut off when you hear the word repentance. But uh, it, it, if, when you begin to understand what it means, um, it's uh, a very gracious and personal thing that he's asking of us. And it's, be, it's because it opens the channel of abundant living and abundant forgiveness. And what a repentance literally means uh, is a, a turning around, or you might say a change of mind, but it's more not just a change of your mind, but it's a change of your heart and your whole self and saying, you know, I'm done with that. Kind of like the woman in our cold open, the, uh, <clears throat> I'm done with that. <clears throat> and I'm moving on to uh, a new life. I'm going to follow Jesus and follow Jesus way. And um, even though that's not a word we use every day, I think there's something inside of us that resonates with that, something new, something, uh, you know, uh, changing uh, or turning around and turning our lives to something new. Um, another passage that sort of confirms that this is how Jesus treated even s significant sinners is the story of someone who we find out later uh, in John chapter 11, for example, we find out that this is Mary, uh, Lazarus's sister. Did you know that, Ben? Uh, no. This, yeah, yeah, this yeah. This story that uh, that uh, uh, Jesus has a woman come to him, I'm, and that's fairly long. I'm I'm not going to say imagine at the beginning, but go ahead and imagine. 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 Uh, it, verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. Here we go. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his uh, feet weeping, because he was leaning on the table, that's how they did it, low table, leaning forward and his feet were out behind him. Uh, she stood at his, behind him at his feet weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Man, what a sight that must have been. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, apparently without the guy saying anything, Simon, have you something to? I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owned, owed money to a certain money lender. One owed about 500 denarii, which is 500 days wages, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt was forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. 
Then he turned toward the woman and said, and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as, she, as her great love has shown, but whoever <clears throat> has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? We might even say, who is this who even forgives Big time sins. Big time sins, yeah. And Jesus said to the woman, your feet, oh, it's your feet, your faith. <laughs> I told you that was going to happen. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And, you know, I was thinking about this uh, today when I was, I was starting to crack open again. I try to do this every uh, Christmas time. Read uh, Dorothy Sayers, The Man uh, Born to be King. And one of the cool things about that cycle of plays, there are 12 radio plays in this thing, is that at the beginning of each, uh, um, at the beginning of each act, she writes out, apparently for the actors, what she thinks the characters were like. And for Mary, this Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister, uh, she, she says this, Mary is, a vivid, is vivid with vitality. Nothing not even repentance can quench her spirits for long. Once she, loved, uh, once she loved the wrong things, now she loves the right things. But she does both passionately, nor is she going to pretend that the old worthless pleasures were without their glamour. What she sees in Jesus is, quote-unquote, the life, the blazing light of living intensely, which shows, uh, shows up the tinsel and the tawdry for what it is. She is mercurial, laughing readily, enjoying readily, weeping readily, and she sits easily to the mechanism of life. One feels that if at any time the rations failed and to arrive, she would make everybody eat boiled potatoes and find it amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, as you see her when she uh, is uh, in the Lazarus story later on, after she knows she's been forgiven, uh, she is the perfect picture, just like the woman caught in adultery, although we don't hear about her in other cases that we know of. But Mary uh, is the very definition of abundant forgiveness. That's great. And you know, this abundant forgiveness of Jesus is not a new thing in the New Testament. It is the new covenant. It's the fulfillment of the old covenant. But it's actually who God is and what he's all about all along. I was actually just, I got an email this week from somebody who was asking me about, how, how do I reconcile the God of the Old Testament, who seems to be okay just meeting out these insane punishments for sin with Jesus, who seems to be really all about forgiveness. How do we reconcile the two? Which is a common question a lot of people have, right? seems mm -hmm. like Old Testament God is, is angry, and, yeah. and New Testament Jesus is loving and, and forgiving. But we've seen, first of all, that both take sin really seriously. Jesus takes it seriously because it's actually killing his good world and all the people in it. It's like a disease that he needs to take care of, and that's what forgiveness is all about. But mm -hmm. also... Uh, we, we, if we look in the Old Testament, we see that God is really quick to forgive from the very, very beginning. 
Um, there's a there's a lot of about this in the Psalms. Uh, you hear like in Psalm 10, uh, 130 in verses 7 and 8, it says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption, or some translations would say abundant redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and verse 8 says, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And you get this this image of God being ready to forgive as soon as as soon as the Lord arrives as soon as he comes as, as you wait for the Lord as you hope in the Lord with with the Lord's arrival comes unfailing love or what the Hebrew Bible calls Hesed which is a very deep profound word that you could meditate on for days and days and days there are whole books written about Hesed in fact I think last year Michael Card yeah. the musician mm-hmm. came out with a whole scholarly book and new album That's called right. Hesed. Yeah. Actually, and it's the, it's the, it's not the he in the Hebrew, it's the he. Yeah, sorry, Hesed. So I, oh, yeah, I just yeah, got that yeah. all over okay. my mic. Never mind. Yeah, that's nice. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, so you see that from the, from the very beginning, all the way through the Old Testament, God's desire is to redeem, to pardon and forgive abundantly. In fact, God declares himself to be this way. In Exodus 34, Moses has asked God to reveal himself, and Moses says, uh, God passes before Moses and says this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And sometimes we might get hung up on the last sentence of that. But notice that God's self-description at the very beginning of the Bible, all the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, God's self-description is lopsided. It's not equal punishment and equal mercy. It's God is always much quicker and more ready to offer mercy and forgiveness, but he does take sin seriously, and he will bring things about in a just way. Uh, but but you get the sense that all, all the weight sort of lays on one side there. In fact, some theologians, especially the Puritans, would call uh, punishment God's strange work. It's his, he does it, but it's his strange work. It's not what most naturally flows from his heart. Forgiveness and mercy is what most naturally flows from the heart of God by his own self-definition. And in fact, this is really interesting in verse 7 of that, what I just read, where it says, maintaining love to thousands. The Hebrew there actually means a thousand generations. And then the very next phrase, you get uh, punishing the guilty for, and their children for the sins of the parents for the third and fourth generation. And you get this sense that God's mercy and love continues for a thousand generations, whereas his... Uh, uh, punishment and his discipline might might go for three or four generations. And that's just a, a very poetic Hebrew way of saying God is quick to forgive, and he is slow to anger, and he does not hold on to his anger, and he's always ready to pour out mercy and forgiveness. In fact, there's this really great story about this in 1 Kings 21, which is the story where Ahab wants a vineyard, so he and his wife kill the guy who owns the vineyard and take possession of it. And Elijah, the prophet, comes to him and says, not okay, God's going to kill you for that, basically. Yeah. And uh, Ahab, who we know, we know he's devious. We know he's not one to crumble under threats. Uh, or he, we know that he's someone, something of a manipulator. But he sort of repents. He goes, oh, no, I'm going to die. Oh, God, please forgive me. Please save me. And you get the sense that it's not really all that genuine. He's and sort of soon, a weasel. Right? As yeah. Soon as, yeah, that's a perfect word. He's a weasel. As <laughs> soon as he escapes the judgment, you have the sense that he's going to go right back to his old way of living. Mm-hmm. And yet God comes to Elijah in verse 28 
uh, it says, then, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And it's almost like it taps him on the shoulder. He says, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself, I will not bring disaster in his day. And so uh, it's like God has this, he's just waiting. He's just waiting for even the littlest bit of repentance, even just the littlest sort of like getting on his knees and asking for forgiveness, even if it's not totally genuine. And you get the sense that God has an enthusiasm for repentance and an enthusiasm for giving out forgiveness and mercy. And uh, I think that's just such a great picture of who God is. He will do what's right in order to maintain justice and, and, a, and a world where people um, really, really do uh, ha- have a sense that the wrongs committed against them will be made right. But he also is so quick, even just the littlest bit of half-hearted repentance, he's ready to just jump on it and say, all right, forgiveness granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, Ben, uh, Elijah the Tishbite, I thought it was like... An insect, cause yeah, like Elijah the tick bite. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It does sound like that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Do you have do you have tish bites right now? Are you? Uh, are no, you is no, that why you're scratching? Not out here so in much? the conifers, no. Okay, no. yeah, yeah. We don't uh, have very many tishes out no, here. No, no. Uh, <laughs> but you know that, yeah, that's really true. The abundant forgiveness, all through the Old Testament too. People don't give credence to that. Like you said, your friends asking how how do you reconcile this? Um, but God, even when He does have to judge, He's doing it so He can open them up to His abundant forgiveness, like when He's sends them into exile. There are several Old Testament passages that, that passages that say, I'm doing this so that you'll return to me, mm-hmm. so that I can open it up. And, and even that statement about um, uh, you know, the sins of the generations to come, those aren't the sins of the parents on the kids. They're the, the sins of uh, are their own sins that they, they wind up doing uh, because uh, their parents have done them. But by the way, that's uh, you know one of our favorite professors, Gary Bashir's, uh, the the verse he turns to to say, okay, this is the definitive verses mm-hmm. on who God is. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, for takeaways to today, um, just uh, want to just reemphasize the fact that what changes everything is the overabundance of Jesus' forgiveness, and that starts all of the other abundances. That we're the abundances. Talk about. Abundances. The, ab- the abundance. Yeah, see, we're creating all <laughs> kinds. Of, that's put that in the dictionary. Okay. Yeah. Abundances, um, along with tick bite. <clears throat> but um, Colossians and Paul, Paul in Colossians chapter two, beginning of verse thirteen, has a, a, a several sentences that really I think kind of bring this home and drive this home. And he says, "When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ." He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's what Jesus did with our sin. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I want to revisit as we close this up. Uh, an, an old new friend, someone we've an, quoted before. An old new friend? An old, a new friend, uh, because he just wrote his book in 2020. That's we're, right. We're, how do you like that, Ben? We're going from the 1940s and 50s all the way up to 2020. I'll bet we can do a yeah. wider spread next time. I bet we can, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's a book called Gentle and Lowly, and it's by Dane Ortland. And um, it's, it's really a powerful book about uh, what, how God forgives us, how God treats us, how he deals with sin, 
and how he deals with suffering in our lives that's caused by living in a fallen, sinful world. But here, listen to this, what he says. This is, very, this is where it sort of takes it home and makes it personal. If you are a part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He takes part with you, quote-unquote. That is, he is on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. We understand this when we consider the hatred a father has against the terrible disease afflicting his child. A father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out of his heart to the child all the more. This is not to ignore the disciplinary side of Christ's care for his people. The Bible clearly teaches that our sins draw forth the discipline of Christ, as in Hebrews chapter 12. He would not truly love us if that were not true. But even this is a reflection of his great heart for us. That's great. And you, you suppose that that's possibly what, Je what Jesus saw uh, when this woman was dragged in front of him, a, a change of heart, hmm. that she was ready for forgiveness because she'd already, her sin had already cost her so much and caused so much suffering and destruction that she was right there at his feet, just the kind of person he loves to forgive. That's great. I think that's a great thing to end yeah, on. I think so. So then maybe that time. What? Which time would that be? Books and stuff. Which stuff? Books and stuff. Wait, sorry, sorry, one more time. Books and stuff. Books and stuff. All right. You got a book or a stuff, Ben? You know, I have a book and a stuff. Okay, go. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of confusion in, uh, I think, a lot of people's minds about what the word repentance means, because we've talked about repentance in right. this episode. And uh, it can... It can we can think that it means feeling bad about our sin. The worse we feel, the more we're repenting. Mm. In reality, the Bible actually never says we have to feel feel guilty in order to repent. Repenting is an act of our will, um, and uh, and it's it's pretty uh, amazing to really dig deep into what this gift. It's actually a gift from God. The gift of repentance really is. And so I have this book here called You'll Never Guess Repentance. Oh, a daring call to real surrender by C. John Miller. And oh, uh, I thought you were going to say see somebody else. Okay, good. <laughs> see John Miller. Uh, and, uh, I see it, John Miller. Yep, it's a, it's a great uh, little book. It's very short. It's only it's less than 100 pages. It's 97 pages. Oh, cool. Excellent little book on, for, on repentance. Uh, I encourage you to read it. Second thing is a stuff. I've got a stuff. Um, did, you, did you know, Dad, that there is a podcast called the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast? I did. People just send I in questions. I haven't done it yet. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty exciting. And uh, episode number 71 of this podcast is called, Should the Story of the Woman Caught in Adultery Be in Our Bible? Ooh, good. And so uh, we already kind of discussed that a little bit, but if you want to go deeper as to why that's still reliable scripture and why we, we are, we are uh, talking about it on this episode, you can check out episode 71 of the Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Cool. I'm writing that down, Ben. That's great. Yeah. You always learn something new when you come over to my house. I do. Huh? Yeah. yeah. I eat too much, too. But um, That's a different story. Yeah. Let's not get into it. Uh, I just have a book and I have a stuff. The book is, uh, I think I might have mentioned it before, but I can't remember. Uh, the best book of the last century, maybe of many centuries, uh, John Stott, The Cross of Christ. Uh, speaking, if you want to take a deep dive you're, into you're the You're saying best, best book of any genre. 
uh, on the cross of Christ is what I'm saying. Oh, best book yeah. about the cross. Of yes. Christ. No, I'm Got not it. saying any genre. Oh, no. I was going to say you're, you're putting this one over Lord of the Rings when you say that, or over C.S. Lewis. You know. Well, in its own right, yes, but I mean, it's not. It's not a non. It's a nonfiction book. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. And then the the stuff that I have is Ben. Did you know we have an Instagram account? I did hear that one of our faithful uh, listeners slash yes. minions <laughs> yes. has made an Instagram yes. account for yes. us. Yes. Well, I have no idea how to use it or what that really means. But I'm going to find out this week. I'm going to learn. And yes, you are. if you are out there and you want, it's, it's something with these days in the title. I know that. Yeah. Uh, so, that's that's correct. Yes. Do, do you want me to talk about the Instagram? Well, yeah. I'm why, not why actually sure if you know how an Instagram. Well, works. I ju- yeah. You just tell them where where they can send some questions, and maybe we'll put them in a podcast. Sure. Somewhere. Well, yeah. yeah we're gonna uh, we started this um, Instagram because um, you know we're entering the 21st century. Finally, yeah. we're catching up, yep. and uh, the the these days podcast we decided needs its own. Uh, its own podcast or its own uh, Instagram. And so you can find us at these days pod ECC ECC stands for Eastridge covenant church. I believe Uh, these days pod ECC. um, And this is a kind of catch all place. There'll be photos, videos behind the scenes. And like we said, we, there will be some episodes where we invite you to send in your questions via the these days Instagram. So if you, and and we'll also talk about the books, we'll give more information on the books and the stuff that we're uh, recommending. So uh, if you want further details or show notes or things that we're talking about. If you want to have input on what we're talking about, or if you just want some goofy pictures of my dad in front of a microphone, I'm not the only one. (laughs) Then uh, you can go to the Instagram account, which is these days pod ECC. You got to really see Ben's kilt. I'm telling you what I, 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 for the, for the record, I do not have a kilt. (laughs) (laughs) You know, here in the Highlands castle, you never know what will happen. But uh, I just want to give one more stuff, and this is what we're going to wind up with, okay? Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, that album that you have, that new album. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Lights of the Chapel? A Light in the Chapel, yeah. yeah so I looked up week. that song enough that you talked about last week, and I got to say, this is not self-promotion, and it's not dad promotion. It's just a fact. It's a good song, and it's powerful, and it talks really about all of this... Um, abundance that we're talking about this season, but especially the abundance of uh, forgiveness and uh, the hope that is there when it doesn't things think, uh, feel like things are going uh, quite the way they ought to go. And we're wondering what, you know, something's not the way it's supposed to be. But uh, it winds up on a real high note of hope in terms of this business of enough. So we're going we're gonna to play that out uh, as we leave you today. And with that, I'm going to leave you with the Bilbo Baggins benediction. We'll be going, man. Something isn't right here. Something in my head. When thinking about tomorrow, only fills me up with dread. Cause Jesus is a fountain of courage and of love. There will be, 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 there will be enough. Maybe you won't feel it as you're marching off to war. 
But help will find you when you need it And maybe not before Cause a father reigns in heaven Whose name is also love And there will be, there will be There will be, there will be There will be, there will be enough forsaken and when you start to feel forlorn just think about the master see him sleeping through the storm cause he knows the waves around you still obey the voice of love and there will be there will be there will be, 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 there will be.